0: been a tough couple of weeks, and I have never been so grateful for rain as I was on Friday. If you weren't here last Sunday, you may not know that we set aside time during worship to lift up our prayers and concerns for all those impacted by the wine country fires, people evacuated, first responders, people who lost their homes and businesses or lives. Last week, the general anxiety level was palpable, and I think that's what happens when people experience trauma, even when it's secondhand. We can't just barrel through as if nothing happened. A catastrophe takes its toll. So before I talk about today's passage, I want to offer some encouragement to you that we all be kind to ourselves in the midst of this, and that we be kind to each other. I'll say more later about some of the concrete things we can do to help, uh, but it will take time for the region and for us to recover from this. There's no switch to flip. Now that we can take a deep, relatively smoke-free breath, we need to do that. I imagine Jesus taking a deep breath before he responded to his interrogators in today's passage. One of the most iconic moments in the original Star Wars movies came to my mind when Admiral Akbar shouts, It's a trap. <laughs> Where are the Star Wars fans? <laughs> it's a trap. In the third movie, as the rebels realize that they're surrounded by imperial ships, that's what I wanted to shout to Jesus. But I think Jesus probably had the impulse to take a deep breath, or at least pause, before responding to these Pharisees and Herodians, and that's the wiser, less anxious choice. We're told from the outset that the Pharisees, fed up with Jesus, are plotting to entrap him. We know this. To do this, they join forces with an unlikely ally, the Herodians. This is one of those, the enemy of my enemy is my friend situations. The Pharisees were highly observant Jews who despised Rome and Roman rule of their homeland. The Herodians supported the Romans. They both want to get rid of Jesus. The Pharisees asked Jesus whether it's lawful to pay taxes to the emperor. But they don't really want tax advice. Either a yes or no answer will get Jesus in trouble. The census tax required by Rome was not only an economic burden, it was also a painful reminder that Judea was occupied by foreign powers who worshiped false gods. The tax could only be paid with Roman coins, which were not just legal tender, but pieces of propaganda. Most of the coins had an image of the emperor with inscriptions proclaiming him to be the divine son of God, a graven image that was both blasphemous and politically humiliating. So a yes will discredit Jesus with the Jews and show him to be disloyal to God. A no will show him to be disloyal to the empire. And he could be arrested for treason. Jesus asks to see the coin. Someone produces one. Now this all by itself incriminates the questioners. Apparently they're happy to do business with Caesar's coins. They even carry them into the temple. Whose image is on this, Jesus asks, and whose title? The coin, of course, bears Caesar's image. It belongs to Caesar. You can almost picture Jesus saying with a shrug, so give it back to him. In the King James, it's render therefore unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Apparently it isn't disobedient to God to pay our taxes. Then the zinger. And give to God the things that are God's. What belongs to God? The coin bore Caesar's image and belonged to Caesar. So what is it exactly that bears God's image? Well, I tipped my hand with the children's sermon. We don't have to hunt in our pockets or purses. Just turn in the direction of the person sitting next to you this morning. Look at the people in the cars that you pass at the people that you see at the grocery store, the gym, at work, at school, and you will see the image of God again and again. Human beings may pay taxes to the emperor, but we do not belong to the emperor. We bear the image of God. We belong to God. So what are we to give to God? That which is stamped with God's image. We are to give God. Our very selves, our very lives, not just a part of ourselves, not just a part of our lives. Go ahead, give Caesar the tribute and pay the taxes, but give God what belongs to God, your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. What does this look like? There's a fancy theological word for this, this way of thinking about our responsibility for the resources that God has given us in God's world, including our very selves, and that theological word is stewardship. We no longer call the annual fall church fund drive a stewardship campaign. We don't use that phrase anymore. We call it the annual giving campaign, and the reason for the change is that stewardship is so much more than raising money for the church. Stewardship certainly encompasses our spending, the way we use our economic resources, but that's just a drop in the stewardship bucket. It isn't just our money that calls for our stewardship, it's everything, including our time, our talent, our treasure, including this planet and all its resources. If you aren't familiar with this theological term, stewardship, look at it this way. Let's say I'm going out of town for a few weeks, and my dog and my goldfish need care. I know a couple of pretty responsible 25-year-olds who live in a cramped studio apartment, and so I invite them to house and pet sit for me. They'll be able to spread out and have a real kitchen for a change and a backyard. They can use my grill and live like they live in a house. It'll be good for me because they'll water my plants and feed my pets. If I come back after three weeks and everything is well taken care of, I'd say the sitters are good stewards of my house. But what if I come home and my... Native grasses are dead, and there are a dozen empty beer cans scattered like aluminum leaves amid the rosemary and lavender. And I open my front door, and there are stains on the couch, and the whole house reeks of three-day-old Chinese food. My goldfish is belly up. What would I say? Or at least what would I say that's repeatable in a sermon? It would be something like, they were bad stewards of my house. Now imagine another scenario. What if I came back after three weeks, and the lavender and rosemary and the native grasses are flourishing? I walk up to the house and peek through the window and the front door, and the interior looks immaculate, and I'm thrilled. I put my key in the lock, but it doesn't work. I check, and it's the right key, but the lock has been changed. I look again into the house and notice that the furniture has been rearranged. The fishbowl is clean, but there's a Siamese fighting fish in it, and no sign of Goldie. The two 25-year-olds are playing Xbox. I ring the front doorbell and knock. They glance at me and wave, and go back to their game as though the house is now theirs. In this case, the problem is not whether they were good stewards or bad stewards but that they forgot they were stewards. They think they're the owners. We belong to God. As the psalmist wrote, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. A church member gave me a copy of the current edition of the Pacific Sun, which includes an article by Stett Holbrook called The New Normal. It's about how we live in a different era of fire danger because of climate change. The climate in Northern California has changed, and so have the risks. The article concludes, We in California have the opportunity to see the handwriting on the wall and make some changes. Changes that decrease decrease the risk of fire, and Peter Anderson and Ron Vestal are going to share something about that with you later but also changes that slow climate change. God wants creation to flourish. That means we human beings who have the power to destroy as well as care for creation need to be good stewards of it. Remembering we are not the owners is a good place to start. It also might help to remember that unlike the analogy of the 25-year-old house-sitters, When we're bad stewards, when we forget we aren't the owners, it destroys us and the future generations to come as well. We're also called to be good stewards of the gift of this congregation. We do, in fact, begin our annual giving campaign today. Jack Spears will say more about that in a bit. Last week, while we were all trying to breathe, a team of folks who make... Who take the stewardship of this congregation very seriously met to talk about our future. This team, the next level team, includes Margaret Melch, Dave Jones, and Lori Bunton, and it's no accident that these are our last three annual giving campaign chairs. It also includes Raquel Nelson, Martha Olson Joyce, Robin Truett, Vivian Volz, and me. And if you're here, would you stand up so people can see who you are? Yes, thank you. Our congregation has an unusually good sense of itself and its ministries and its identity and calling as God's church sent into the world to serve. The Next Level team is working with an organization called the Center for Progressive Renewal to take us to the next level to more effective outreach and publicity about our ministries and a more conscious welcome when people walk through our doors. Also to better use technology, which is not only the wave of the future, but a present necessity. We have been saying for years here that what's going on in our congregation is amazing and rich and faithful and compelling. Why don't more people know about it? What's a better way to invite people to come along on the journey with us? And so the Next Level team is exploring answers to those questions. That is good stewardship. That is good stewardship of the gift that God has given us through the commitment of faithful members of this congregation for the past 130 years. I encourage you to engage the people on this team with your thoughts and questions and to invite them to tell you what we've done so far. Some of it is obvious, like our freshman bulletins. Some of it is not, like the redesign of our church secretary job to include communications. The team will be looking for ways that all of us can participate in this good stewardship of our congregation. Carolyn Winfrey Gillette took today's passage and put it to the tune of "God, Who's Giving Knows No Ending." It's a hymn in our hymnal at seven sixteen, and Gillette's version of that hymn includes these verses. Find a tax coin in your treasure. See the image that it bears. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to rulers what is theirs. Yet he pressed on with this message. Give to God what is God's own. We who bear our maker's image worship God and God alone. Lord of all in every nation, may your word be understood that we have an obligation to support the common good. May our taxes altogether fund our working hand in hand so that life will be made better for all people in this land. Still, we also hear your teaching. Give to God what God is due. May no ruler overreaching try to take the place of you. May we listen to your message. May we honor what is yours. May we, living in your image, seek your kingdom That endures. May we, living in God's image, seek God's kingdom that endures. May it be so for you and for me. Amen.